Welcome to Whole Healthy Living with your host, Sharon Brennan. Our show will provide the expert information you need to clean up your body and environment to live a vibrant life. You'll learn about harmful toxins, detoxification, proper nutrition, and much more. Learn how you can live clean in our toxic world. Now, here is Sharon Brennan. Hi, welcome back to Whole Healthy Living, Clean Living in a Toxic World. I'm your host, Sharon Brennan, licensed and board-certified holistic health coach and nutritionist. Today, I have Pam Schoenfeld and Adele Height joining me from Healthy Nation. Healthy Nation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to making essential nutrition the priority in our dietary guidance, policy, and conversations about healthy eating. As an organization, they hope to shift the current focus of removing bad foods from the diet to a focus of including nourishing foods into the diet. Pam Schoenfeld is a licensed dietitian and nutritionist with a practice focus that specializes in helping children and their parents achieve better lives by following ancestral nutrition principles. Pam is passionate about getting the word out to people in all socioeconomic groups. She became the co-founder of Healthy Nation Coalition just prior to the release of the 2010 Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Now serving as director of Healthy Nation Coalition, she continues to push for dietary policy that is based on ensuring adequate essential nutrition over the current focus on prevention of chronic disease. She believes that essential nutrition, or I'm sorry, essential nutrients are first and foremost in the maintenance of optimal nutritional health. Adele Height is a PhD student in communication, rhetoric, and digital media at North Carolina State University. Adele is also a registered dietitian and holds two master's degrees in public health nutrition and English and has pursued graduate studies in nutrition epidemiology. She is policy chair and co-founder of Healthy Nation Coalition. Her current work examines the historical, social, political, and technological context surrounding the creation and evolution of the U.S. Dietary Guidelines for Americans' Essential Nutrient Needs. Like Pam, she also believes it is first and foremost in the maintenance of optimal nutritional health. Welcome, Pam and Adele. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. Thanks, Sharon. You're very welcome. I'm very excited about the show, and I know that like I said earlier, before we went on the air, um, we're all so passionate about getting this information out there. So I'm excited for the show. And let's start with dietary guidelines and their effects on America's food and health. Uh, what would you say are the dietary guidelines precisely for Americans and why should people care about them? Well, dietary guidelines... Um, sort of fly under the radar, I think, of most Americans. But they are the policy document that uh, is the basis for all federal activity that um, impacts nutrition. So this is not just uh, feeding programs like women, infants, and children, and school lunches and things like that, which do affect a lot of people. But they're also um, direct research. They um, direct what uh, healthcare providers are educated in. So this the basis for textbooks um, in mainstream universities, in high schools, in elementary schools, the food pyramid. This is what really the federal dietary guidelines are what 
Americans are taught is true about nutrition. Yeah, and I would add, even though they do appear to fly under the radar screen, as Adele said, I think they're a lot more in our consciousness than we actually realize. And in fact, it starts at a very, very young age. I've had uh, very young patients recite things to me. Well, I don't, you know, they weren't reciting them, they were just repeating them, I suppose, that I think they'd learned in their, um, you know, public school education. And that type of thing is very difficult to reverse. Um, So they go into, you know, into eating for the rest of their lives with these assumptions that these all things are true. And I think it's a very big problem because some of the things really don't hold true across the board. And so what are your, both of you, what are your thoughts on the USDA, the, the plate? Um, are you advocates of it? Well, the, so from my perspective, the problem with the plate is that it's not, it, it conveys essentially no information. What's a fruit? What's a vegetable? Protein. I and mean, protein, what is a protein? And when you look under the plate, literally, I mean, you go onto the web and you click on there, you'll find things like a fruit is a frozen apple juice concentrate and a whole grain is triscuits. So the plate, by oversimplifying what's going on with nutrition, really undermines any idea of acquiring wholesome, nourishing food. You know, on the other hand, I, I find the, the plate, the my plate, I don't use it in my education except to, especially with children, to show them how that plate differs or compares to what the information I give them because they are being taught that information in school, the children, and they need to understand how that fits into the larger picture. So it's, you know, I'd like to say throw out the plate, but it's really prevalent, the education, use of it in education. So I, I try to, personally, I try to use it, but I try to expand upon it. Um, and certainly things like low-fat da- dairy is not something I would, um, for anyone actually, I think that full-fat dairy for, is, is much more useful nutritionally than the low-fat dairy. But anyway, it's a nice little graphic, but as Adele said, it's very, very, very limited. Yeah, it's limited, and there's some wrongful information in there that I don't agree with. Um, I I don't know your thoughts on this, but based on my training and understanding, you know, mixing fruits with protein um, create an acidic environment and inhibit absorption of, you know, the nutrients that you're trying to uh, absorb within your within your meal. So um, that said, and then the fact that half the grains should be whole grains. Um, I don't promote at all um, simple carbs and and grains and um, refined grains and so forth. So um, dairy, I have to honestly say I agree with you, Pam. Um, I'm, you know, all for get everyone getting their fat. Uh, We cannot, our bodies cannot live on a fat-free diet um, or cannot be healthy, I should say, uh, on a fat-free diet. Based on my training, I focus on essential nutrients and how they support the systems and organs in the body. And again, I just don't agree with a lot of the information that's, you know, being conveyed from this, this plate and um, promoted. But uh, again, it also promotes soy. Um, I'm not an advocate of soy. Soy demineralizes the body. 
um, unless it's unless it's fermented and most of the soy that's in the you know grocery stores and marketplace are not fermented so um, again it demineralizes the body and is actually taking nutrient or minerals out of the body uh, quality non-organic food um, I'm not I, I really feel like uh, non-organic food is you know toxic if it's not if the animals are not treated properly um, the way God intended and grass fed and pastured um, they do not render the nutritional attributes that we should be getting um, instead you know our government is injecting them with growth hormones to speed up their growth um, for profit and injecting them with antibiotics because they're corn fed and cows cannot digest corn um, so and then you have the whole glyphosate and GMO issue and so if the animals are not grass-fed and pastured they're in turn not providing us with the nutrition that we need so I think uh, back to whole grains, whole ingredients, um, you know, that's the premise of my show is clean living in a toxic world and whole is very important. But that said, I didn't mean to run down the bunny trail. Um, um, Sharon, can I just add something? Sharon, I, I yeah. wholeheartedly agree with the things you say. The only issue I have, especially being that I'm a dietitian that works within the insurance, uh, health insurance system, I've... Mm-hmm specifically so I can reach the average income families, not just the ones that have access to the grass-fed, you know, pasture products, which is actually something I've always, well, not always, but for the past 15 years I've sought out um, after my uh, learning of these things um, through the Weston Price Foundation. However, I don't know if it's economically feasible for all um, sectors of our population and I do think my philosophy is let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And therefore, while I would agree with the things you say, I think it's difficult to promote that level of education on nutrition to the the, the general public. Um, I don't know if Adele has any comments on that. but that's I, res- I respect exactly what you're saying, Pam. Um, however, in my experience, and I mean this sincerely um, – People that have, uh, you know, limited uh, funds to, you know, spend on food or budgeted funds, I should say, to spend on food, um, you know, if, you, if done properly, we don't need all these snacks and boxed goods and this and that in our homes. If, you're, if you focus on three healthy meals a day, and that means like a breakfast, breaking your fast in the morning, not like you know, all this food, this spread for breakfast. Um, But if you're focusing specifically on nutrients and breaking your fast in the morning, something like a, you know, yogurt with fresh fruit is not that expensive, relatively speaking. And then for, you know, a healthy lunch and dinner, just being sure that you have protein on your plate, fat on your plate, and some complex carbohydrates on your plate. Again, focusing on each meal and planning it really doesn't have to be a very expensive endeavor to, you know, put clean food in front of you. But that's just in my opinion. And um, again, I do respect what you're saying and agree that, you know, uh, people have different budgets and and can only spend so much on their food. And yes, and I, I, I think if we encourage people to spend on key 
parts of the um, diet, such as I, I generally promote organic dairy. I'd love to promote um, f- solely free-range, pastured, you know, eggs, um, chickens, you know, eggs that come from chickens that have that type of life. But I know, for, for example, for where I live, ch- those type of eggs can be upwards of $8 a dozen. And oh, I do think, yeah, I do think for some people that's cost prohibitive. Yeah. So that's all I would have to add. I know Adele was about to um, add something as well. Uh, I was just saying that this is, you know, this sort of highlights the problem with my plate is that it's just shows here are food components and it doesn't say anything about the larger system from which these foods come. Um, we're so focused on what people are putting on their plates and we so want to regulate and control that that we have turned our attention away from the system as a whole, which is where I believe the focus needs to be. So do you think people really follow the dietary guidelines established by the USDA? That's a tricky question because I think what when that question is posed, people think, oh, people get up in the morning and they consciously make an effort to change their diets in the direction of these particular rules for eating. Um, that, that I'm not so sure about. And in fact, we don't have a lot of good data on that. But what we do know is that the food system as a whole has shifted. So with the advent of the dietary guidelines, we took saturated fats out of foods and we replace them at the urging of groups like Center for Science and the Public Interest with trans fats. And um, that wasn't a choice that any individual made. That was a shift in the food system. Um, So we reduced our intake of saturated fat and uh, concomitantly increased our intake of trans fats because of the dietary guidelines. This was true as well about high fructose corn syrup. Um, When food manufacturers took out the fat as they were asked to do by the government, um, this was not something that the food industry you know, thought independently was such a great idea, but the government urged them to make convenient um, accessible, good-tasting foods that would adhere to the parameters set forth in the dietary guidelines, which tell us that we need to eat less fat, less saturated fat, less cholesterol. And so they took those things out of the food and they added things like high fructose corn syrup, which was a very cheap ingredient. Um, So whether or not we consciously follow the dietary guidelines, our choices in foods are limited by the dietary guidelines. And for that matter, when we look at um, both consumption and um, food production data, we can see that uh, Americans have increased their intake of flours, grains, and cereals, and increased their intakes of vegetable oils, both um, of which changes are in line with the dietary guidelines. And slowly... Oh, sorry, Pam. Go right ahead. That's okay. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's interesting um, how the food supply has changed almost by default. We have to, in many cases, follow the dietary guidelines um, if we're not conscious that we are following them. So it's, it's by default. I think a lot of people do it. On the other hand, in my practice, I see many, almost almost all the patients I see that don't have additional knowledge <clears throat> beyond the dietary guidelines will say to me, oh, really? Is it okay that I eat two eggs every day? Or really, um, you think that full-fat milk is better than skim milk? 
and they they question whether I'm giving them accurate information, and then I have to point them into um, a direction where they can find additional resources. I certainly don't want anybody to just rely on what I'm saying, especially when their doctors often disagree. So, you know, when we don't necessarily follow them on a a planned basis, you know, but it just happens that we can't get away from them. That's exactly what I have to do as well, and it's just. Um, presenting the information so that they understand it and don't feel like it's your opinion. They have to understand that this is science. So slowly you're hearing in the media and seeing um, within the media that fats are being introduced back into our food chain, if you will, and uh, especially saturated fat where for so long it was poo-pooed by medical doctors and um, you know we were living under this big fat lie. But um, I think people are now scientifically beginning to understand that we need fat to produce prostaglandins. And not only fat, but it has to be the right balance of fat. And uh, the premise of all disease is inflammation. And um, if your body cannot, prop- if the inflammatory process is not working properly and the body cannot properly anti-inflame, we are in turn going to have disease. And I think that's where you know, due to this imbalance and, um, you know, lack of fats in our diet, I think that's why we have so much disease today, especially, you know, thyroid disease and uh, so forth. But uh, my my concern as they uh, relax the uh, guidelines on fat, Adele had mentioned the the trans fats originally were, were brought in to replace the animal, the saturated fats. Um, and now we're seeing, obviously, we're moving away from those. Government even, la- you know, requires labeling of that now, plus in some restaurants in certain areas. But now they're moving towards the vegetable oils, um, which is a difficult thing for the manufacturers and the food, the restaurants to use because they are so subject to rancidity and oxidation. But now the latest version of the dietary guidelines, the 2015 version that just came out in January, is now recommending oils, which we know oils usually signify liquid vegetable oils. Okay. And as We're you talked about inflammation, Sharon, that, that's going to be, I think, you know, that is a huge problem, those liquid vegetable oils. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back and we're going to pick up with oils. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Weston A. Price Foundation provides accurate information on nutrition and health. Find out why butter is a health food, what's wrong with modern soy products, and why good health is found in the wise food traditions of our ancestors. Visit our informative and fascinating website at www.westonaprice.com. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You are tuned in to Whole Healthy Living with Sharon Brennan. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to wholehealthylivingradio at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, we're back. Adele, do you want to pick up where you left off on fats? Well, I've seen a lot of um, talk in the media about how the dietary guidelines have lifted the cap on fats and we're no longer uh, recommending from the, from the federal standpoint a low-fat diet. But I, I have to um, impress upon your listeners that this simply is not true. They are um, recommending a low oil diet really is what it boils down to. So uh, the shift, as Pam said, is away from all solid fats and to oils. But it's still, even at that, it's limited in our diet. Mm -hmm. And you have to be so careful with oils too. A lot of people don't understand that when you take nut and seed oils and put them, and this is a general statement um, because there are other oils as well, that when you put them at high temperatures and cook with them, bake with them, etc. They actually turn to trans fats. As a matter of fact, I have such an issue when I see a restaurant with the, you know, no trans fats here sign up in the window and they're making french fries with olive oil. Yeah. I mean, it's just wrongful information and it's so important. I think that's part of the problem is um, you know, everybody is so busy and so engrossed in their life. Um, and, and their careers and so forth and families that nobody really takes the time to dig and look at the information and, um, and the science behind um, not only essential nutrients, but how they interact with the body. So people are just randomly eating. They eat emotionally. They eat what tastes good. They eat, you know, um, on the run and for convenience. And I think that's part of the problem. And I do think they eat the convenience factor along with affordability. Um, If you go to Whole Foods, for example, and I'm not going to single them out because there's many markets that do the same thing. Almost all their prepared dishes are made with canola oil. And that's still assumed to be very, very healthy. But the level of omega-6s that we're getting in these vegetable oils is way more than we need to stay in balance um, to have our fat the membranes um, that take up our fat to be in balance with omega-3s, omega-6s, saturated fats, and all the other phospholipids. And, you know, that right there I think is actually one of the main problems with the American diet is the imbalance in fats and the poor quality fats that people don't even know they're consuming. And then the other part is with the fats, the animal fats are actually the only reliable sources of the beneficial fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin D, if if you get it from diet versus from the sun, and vitamin K2. And we know those oh, are and s- so essential. important. Yeah, and that vitamin A has such a critical role to um, for absorption, uh, protein absorption, and uh, calcium absorption. Um, vitamin A is also extremely important for shuttling toxins out of the body. Um, oh yes, that's a. That's, I would agree with that. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt, but that I think is huge. I think that detoxification requires that vitamin A, and so many of us are not getting it. I know, and to get good quality vitamin A, 
you know, you really have to get it from clean sources. And, oh, I also want to um, debunk the myth here relative to the uh, what the USDA is promoting. Vitamin A, they're saying, can be found in fruit or in vegetables. And that is such a myth. It's You do not get vitamin A in vegetables. And I've said this on previous shows. Um, you know, vitamin A is found in animal products. Uh, you know, what, you're, what you get in vegetables is carotenes, and carotenes convert to vitamin A in adults. Children do not make that conversion. So, you know, it, again, vitamin A is important also for thyroid function, and so much of our population is walking around with thyroid dysfunction. And, you know, it also, vitamin A is um, extremely important in the production of stress and sex hormones. Um, it's also extremely important for eyes and skin and bones and the immune system. And and reproduction, Sharon, is huge for reproduction, which right. I think most of the, uh, as fact, I see a lot of pregnant women and they bring their prenatal vitamins in or they tell me which ones they're taking and almost none, I can't even think of one that's now prescribed by the physicians, the obstetricians, that actually has preformed vitamin A. And it's interesting, Adele and I uh, submitted commentary on behalf of the Weston Price Foundation um, at, at request from Sally Fallon to the, to the USDA regarding the last um, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report. This, this was last May. And doing the research even in more depth than we'd done it before, it turns out that not only is our vegetables not a reliable source of vitamin A, although for some people they do convert, um, a lot of the beta carotene to vitamin A. That's really genetically determined. But the other aspect is um, high levels of intake of beta carotene actually oppose vitamin A. And additionally, the polyunsaturated fats also um, prevent that ad- um, conversion of beta carotene to vitamin A. So there's many factors playing into the vitamin A status of the country. And I'm very concerned. That's actually my, my pet vitamin. Um, I would say pet peeve on a vitamin because we're also focused on vitamin D, but most medical practitioners do not understand the the interrelationships between vitamin D, A, and K. So that's, that's, that's one of the things that I actually feel very strongly about. And hopefully the Healthy Nation Coalition, in our work to move the dietary guidelines towards essential nutrition, meeting, you know, protein needs, essential fat needs and vitamin and mineral needs, we will be able to increase the awareness of the foods that are needed to eat. And these are usually ancestral foods that have fallen out of favor. Right. Well, what people need to understand is that the reason why vitamins A, D, E, and even K are so important, they're fat-soluble vitamins, and they are responsible for everything that happens in your body. And interesting, vitamin A, A, D, and E, and and actually K to some extent, are shortfall nutrients according to the USDA. So they already know that there is a likelihood that many Americans are not getting enough of those nutrients. So I'm going to throw out a helpful term. Um, from a fellow RD, Allison Boomer. So you know how we talk about whole grains and the importance of whole grains, which implies a lack, you know, that they haven't been refined, they haven't been chemically processed. She uses the term whole fats, which I just love because it reminds us that even animal fats are a combination of fats. 
And these refined and processed and chemically extracted oils really are not. They're very um, heavily weighted towards one particular kind of fatty acid rather than another. So this idea that we need whole fats along with our whole grains, I think is a very useful concept. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. I haven't heard that. Okay, so first there was the food pyramid. Now there's my plate. What are the difference between these two models and how has it changed? Oh, there's no difference. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, what I thought. I didn't see a difference. But. There's no difference. I like to say that the, the plate is just the food pyramid flattened. Um, <laughs> Because that's exact. I mean, it's a different geometric shape, um, and I do like the fact that they have moved um, all of these refined carbohydrates from this place of prominence at the bottom of the plate. But the overriding question, which is the quality of the food that we eat and the the context in which our food is created, produced, grown. Um, it's absent from both models. And this is something that we need to continue to get back to. It's not about what um, micromanaging what people put on their plates. It's about looking at the food system as a whole and seeing what quality of food is emerging from it. Yeah, and I also think it's about the food culture. We've, we've lost touch with what our grandmothers used to tell us was good to eat. I, and I think that's critically problematic in teaching our younger generations what and how to eat. We used to learn it in our homes. And now the government feels that they that's their role. Well, it's pathetic, really. Americans have strayed from their traditional diets. And there's such a disconnect that people, I mean, you can literally look at people in the grocery store. Sometimes they look confused. They don't know what to buy. And I think what happens is, um, you know, people will look at packages and, um, you know, uh, pictures and things of the like and say, oh, this looks good and just throw it in the cart. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I was thinking about something related to people choosing food, but it'll come back to me. The labels that are on foods these days, because we have, because, so one of the things that the dietary guidelines controls are food labeling and what sort of label claims um, the FDA can um, allow. And so that's when you see these things like um, lowers your cholesterol and prevents heart disease. And people see those claims and it doesn't occur to them to think, one, what about actually nourishing my body? What is it providing for my body as opposed to what's be, having been taken out? But the other thing is, where does this information come from? That um, So I, I think that it's the production of food, but we also, um, we need to get people starting to think about this production of information that when they read the labels, what who benefits from the information that is on that label. And, and we know from looking at the health of Americans right now, it, it certainly is not the consumer. Well, Pam, I don't know about you, but in my house, I have very few, very, very few labels. Everything yeah. either is, comes from the earth directly from a farm or from my co-op. So. And, 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 you've, and you haven't forgotten how to cook. I think that's another problem. We, you know, we don't know how to cook the way we used to, taking whatever's in the refrigerator 
and putting it together. I think this reliance on, oh, we need a certain recipe. Well, yeah, recipes are great, but the basic fundamentals of cooking are so simple that you know once you learn them, you can take anything that you have in your pantry, in your refrigerator, wherever, and make something nourishing. And that's I'm not sure how we're going to get that back. And tasty, too, for that oh, matter. Yeah, I think delicious. so many people think that, you know, you have to sit for and prepare for a half an hour before you even start cooking. But that's not true. I mean, last night, for example, I just took a big round steak and threw it in my crock pot and um, put some mushrooms and some seasoning and made some fresh green beans and called it a meal and, you know, made sure that the proper balance of fat was in, uh, integrated as well. Um, you know, I also prepared um, a bone broth previously and put the bone broth in instead of water. And, you know, it, it just, um, it's that simple. And I didn't have time to deal with it, but just putting that together took five minutes and, you know, it was a healthy meal. So it's and not... It's- it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And it's interesting. I bet you put butter on your green beans. And now I, you, you made me remember what I wanted to say before. We have placed vegetables in this category that you better not put any fat on them. You better not put any salt on them. That's exactly and, what I put on them too, salt and, and butter. But, but now the children don't want to eat them. Mm. And it's interesting. Um, the New York Times recently, I believe, reported on some research uh, I think it was done in Boston, um, about families that have limited resources. They're reluctant to buy what we what the government actually thinks is nourishing, which is vegetables and fruits. Pretty much that's one of the only things they think are really good for you. Because the children reject them and the budgets don't allow for food waste. But if if the government was encouraging, oh, you know, use your fat back in your collard greens – I think people would enjoy these food and we we wouldn't have these issues with children turning their noses up at them and then the parents never wanting to purchase or serve them again. Well, unfortunately, everything has to taste sweet, it seems like. If it's not sweet, people won't eat it. And now with, you know, uh, high fructose corn syrup being in everything. um, Yeah, but, but, but sweet is interesting because we know that salt... And butter actually make vegetables less bitter. Um, right. Salt by cutting the bitter flavor and the butter by coating the tongue and providing a little less, you know, it, it just softens the taste. And I even cheese on vegetables. But parents are afraid to do this because they know that butter and salt, for example, are technically, quote unquote, bad for their children. So let's just give them the vegetables. And then the kids, of course, don't really enjoy them. And the parents often give up. I mean, I I don't actually blame them. Well, you know, there are just, again, so many myths out there. And I can't tell you the countless adults recently for some reason that I've talked to. And they're like, oh, no, I'm trying to keep my sodium low for my blood pressure. And what they don't understand, you can have low sodium and have high blood pressure. Um, it's, It's an intricate balance. And that's where, you know, people like you and I, Pam, where we see patients... Um, it's so important to work with a nutritionist or work with somebody who knows what they're doing around food um, if you're trying to manage symptoms or disease or, um, you know, anything for that matter, uh, just healthy eating because it's, again, an education process and people like you and I can point them in the right direction, get them going, plant the seeds. And, you know, it it makes eating so much more interesting and fun when you do know how to eat right and prepare food right. 
Um, and but and what, you're relaxed what, about it. it and yeah. just one more thing about sodium. Sodium is actually a nutrient. And right. there's there's an optimal amount for each individual. What that is, it, there's a range, you know, somewhere around two, two to three thousand, and, and more is fine too for a lot of people. But I've seen I've seen serious athletes in my office that oh no, I don't I don't salt my food. I'm like, well, do you sweat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, yeah. I said, did you ever taste your sweat? <laughs> you know, all the I know. so it's. There's so much misconceptions, and 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 actually, a low sodium diet or lower sodium diet might be appropriate for some people. But that's where that individualized nutrition, and that's what Adele and I and the Healthy Nation Coalition want to stress. If there's a need to reduce sodium, if there's a need to reduce saturated fat, and I'm going to say that I don't think everybody should be on a high saturated fat diet. If well, there's a need to reduce carbs. For a medical condition, that's where you should go to a trained healthcare professional and and find out what your needs and how they sh- what exactly. are, they are how they should be met. Exactly, and that's bio individuality, which I always preach. Everybody's different. Everybody's had different exposures. Everybody has different diets. Everybody's absorbing differently. So, as professionals, it's up to us to bring to people's attentions what their imbalances are, and then help them to balance their imbalances. So, with that said, we're going to take another commercial break here, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Weston A. Price Foundation provides accurate information on nutrition and health. Find out why butter is a health food, what's wrong with modern soy products, and why good health is found in the wise food traditions of our ancestors. Visit our informative and fascinating website at www.westonaprice.com. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned in to Whole Healthy Living with Sharon Brennan. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to wholehealthylivingradio at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. And Adele, I want you to start with the dietary guidelines within schools, and we'll go from there. Well, one of the primary um, ways that the dietary guidelines act on the lives of Americans are through the school lunch and school breakfast program. And there are... Uh, there are a lot of children being fed through these programs. And um, so, for instance, my son, who loves whole milk, goes to school, and the only milk choices he has at school are low-fat milk, which he refuses to drink because he doesn't like the way it tastes, 
or fat-free flavored milk. So these are milk where the fat's been taken out and sugar and flavoring has been put in. He doesn't like the taste of that either. So at an opportunity in the middle of the day to get some nourishment into his body, and he's one of these kids who's growing, 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 and he's you know as big around as a pencil, um, whole milk would be a perfect food to have but he's not going to drink the milk that's being offered because it's limited by the dietary guidelines um, rules around fat in the diet, especially saturated fat. And Pam, I know, has been really looking very closely into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, the research on children, while it is fairly um, preliminary, shows that um, children who consume full-fat dairy actually have less, um, less obesity or less adipose tissue and smaller waist circumferences than in general than the children don't. Now, those are observational studies. We're not actually going to do, well, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon where we're going to do an interventional study with children and, and full-fat dairy because everyone thinks we're going to cause heart disease in the long run. But the data doesn't point to low-fat being beneficial for children, actually for anyone, but especially for children. And then the other thing is, I think this is interesting, when I was in uh, Washington last November meeting with a Congress woman's um, office, I went down to the um, Senate cafeteria and lo and behold, did they not offer full fat milk in, in their offerings? So it's interesting how we've made decisions for the most vulnerable populations, those that can't make decisions for themselves, suppose they need the government guidance, and yet it's, it's the wrong guidance. So we've locked them into bad information and there's really it's it's really a terrible thing and and the other thing is the the keeping the salt levels down well maybe if they salted vegetables in the school lunch cafeterias they'd enjoy them more maybe if somehow we were able to feel that eating cholesterol or maybe a little saturated fat maybe we would offer um scrambled eggs and bacon for breakfast rather than cold cereal sweet cereal with skim milk in the school lunch breakfast program so I, there are two things in these next 12 minutes that I'd like to uh, cover, and that is um, how has the health of Americans changed since the creation of these dietary guidelines, and um, how have the dietary guidelines affected our health care system? So let's focus on that and see where okay. we go. Okay, well, um, the, so you, we can't draw, again, causal connections. But the dietary guidelines are what we call in epidemiology an exposure. So like smoking is an exposure for people who smoke. Well, the dietary guidelines are an exposure for everyone in America. As I pointed out before, there are changes that occurred in our food system, choices that are available in our lunchroom cafeterias and in our grocery stores that were created by the dietary guidelines that we had no control over. And since we... Uh, created these dietary guidelines, we've seen rates of overweight and obesity go up, um, which may or may not be unhealthy in and of itself, but seems to point to some metabolic disturbance created by these changes in our food system. Um, Rates of diabetes are probably what, what I point to as the most alarming thing in terms of increase because diabetes um, are it's such a devastating disease to have and it lasts a long time and there's really terrible complications that accompany it. So we haven't gotten uh, healthier as a nation 
since these dietary guidelines were created, and that was the whole point of them. But in addition to that, with regards to our healthcare system, we now we get patients in who have failed to eat less um, and and move more, which is what we tell them through our public health system, because they're now um, facing dietary health issues. And the only advice that we have for them is to eat even less and to move even more instead of changing the quality of the food in their diet. Mm, so eloquently said. Yeah, and the poor patients, they, they're really struggling. Um, I know that I've had numerous people coming from other from physicians and other dietitians that are just like, well, they're just telling me the same old thing. They're just telling me the same old thing, I, and it doesn't work. And, you know, we have to sit down and figure out what, what their nutrient needs are, what, what they're missing in their diet, what, what excesses do they have, what, what wrong beliefs are they operating under. Um, and that's the job of a very well-trained nutritionist or other healthcare practitioner. And unfortunately, the way the education for, for example, dietitians, and I'm not going to single them out because there's many, many, many good dietitians, but I only can say this because I've been through the dietitian education program is pretty limited. Um, but what's interesting to see is that now the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is starting to offer us more flexibility in how we treat patients and how what advice we give them. I've seen it in a few things that they've recently come out with. Um, and actually, they're not as gung-ho behind the guidelines as you might think um, because they realize that this information is not helping the members they serve because the members they serve want to be effective practitioners. They don't want to just re be regurgitating the dietary guideline for American information, which doesn't work for so many people. So I think it's affecting the healthcare system. I think it affects the physicians actually more than I think it actually affects the nutritionists and dietitians that I've, that I've talked to and, and, you know, gotten patients from the doctors. Uh, I've had a few doctors, more than a few, tell their patients not to come back to me, which is... Oh, I hear that all the time. Isn't it sad? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, input and diet are so important. And, you know, obviously, as we know, um, essential nutrients are what, you know, keep us healthy and alive. And let's talk about, you know, uh, nutrients and what you feel are the most, you know, people should be the most concerned about and what they should be getting adequate amounts of? My, the first one that I am always focused on, if anybody asks me about dietary advice, is you need adequate protein. And this gets construed, again, um, because it, it, it reflects the rhetoric of the dietary guidelines where there's, um, <laughs> there's basically no um, focus on protein. In fact, it's funny that on the plate, um, all the other foods get food names, fruits, grains, vegetables, and protein gets a nutrient name, protein. Um, instead of saying meat, eggs, cheese, fish, poultry, um, it gets this nutrient name. But my, my biggest concern for anyone is that they're getting adequate amounts of protein at every meal and particularly for breakfast because that, that sets sort of the tenor for your metabolism for the rest of the day. And we know now the studies are continually confirming that having adequate protein, again, not high protein, <laughs> but adequate protein for okay, breakfast. Okay, so tell, tell our listeners what adequate protein would be, What how many grams of protein? So, well, I, you know, I think of what adequate protein 
is for breakfast rather than thinking of it in terms of grams of protein. And so you have to play around with it for a little bit. But think about, you know, a couple of eggs and maybe a piece of meat um, or some cheese and some vegetables if you want them for breakfast. But instead of thinking about the amount in terms of, you know, how many grams or how many um, ounces, think about how long it takes your body to get hungry again. If you're hungry again soon, then you need more protein at breakfast. If you work until lunchtime without once thinking about when lunchtime is going to happen, you've probably gotten enough. If you work through lunch and you, you, know, you look up and the clock is, and says 2 o'clock, you've definitely gotten enough protein for breakfast because your body was happy and satisfied for an extended period of time. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with Adele. I can't tell you the number of people that are, especially women, that are not eating protein at the first meal of the day, whatever time that might be. Um, because one of the things I do is I don't tell people they have to eat right away. I tell them, you know, if you're not a breakfast eater, you know, eat when you feel hungry, um, as long as that's working for you. But also, we don't want to encourage just low-fat protein. We don't want to say, well, just, you know, there's this big thing with these Greek yogurts. They're all full. If you go into the grocery store, almost all of them have zero, big zero on them. So I they know. really aren't. I know, and they're not getting any fat. And when I tell people, just get the whole milk, full fat yogurt. In fact, some markets don't even have it. If you if you go to some of the less uh, well off areas, you won't even find it. You have to work, work, look really, really hard. But um, so to add the the right amount of fats, and as Adele had mentioned before, Allison Boomer's term, um, whole fats. But as as far as the the other nutrients, um, m- one of my pet things is the vitamin A, um, and of course then there's also the mineral needs. I think zinc, iron, and magnesium are hugely important, and often get short um, short changed because we're we've really denigrated red meat in this country. I everybody seems to think red meat's not good for you. And while I would say that a diet high in meat or any lean um, animal protein, any flesh protein is good in the right amount, I don't think it's necessarily good in large amounts. And I do think we need to remember that the skin and the organs of the meat, of the animal, um, are important to eat as well to balance those nutrients. So it's actually quite complicated in, if you look at it from a scientific or a textbook way, but if you went back to your grandmother or great-grandmother's recipe books, you probably wouldn't have a hard time meeting what I feel are most of the essential nutrient needs for a normal person, normal healthy individual. Well, without there's so many trendy like vegan diets now and vegetarianism, I guess, can be done. In some cultures, they do it right. Um, you know, the typical American on a vegetarian diet probably isn't doing it right. But um, it's so important, you know, uh, animal products and red meat in particular have all of the amino, full spectrum amino acids. And you can't get that. I mean, other than hemp, and you would have to have hemp in significant quantities, but you don't get full spectrum amino acids or it's very difficult to get the full spectrum amino acids that you get in red meat. And, and, and they're usually much more digestible and assimilable, from, assimilable mm-hmm. for most people. And back to the hemp seed, that's actually really high, I think, in omega-6 fats too. So um, although I'm not sure of that fatty acid profile, I was reviewing some of those yesterday for another thing that I'm working on. But um, my main concern actually as we talk about nutrient needs are, is pregnant women. Um, and young children because they, they are setting their state, that state stage is being set for life. 
and we know nutrient deficiencies or um, imbalances during the prenatal period is going to permanently impact the individual and exactly how I don't think we can really say but I can't tell you the number of children that I've seen that are overweight and they don't appear to eat any more than their peers or their siblings and I know genetics plays a big part but I do think the the, the epigenetic impact of the mother's diet and even the pre preconceptual diet is one of the big problems in this country because of probably subclinical malnourishment that we're just not picking up yet. It's mm-hmm. all part of the equation. However, I feel very strongly that a lot of these chemicals now that are being used, herbicides, pesticides, GMOs, this, that, and the other thing, and then, you know, you put vaccines, immunizations um, into the equation, there is a lot of toxicity, too. Yeah, and, you're right. And it's, not toxic- just, it's not yeah. just the diet. Input is very important, but, you know, input and diet, input meaning diet, but input and diet are very important. But again, clean food. And I think one of the biggest things we're up against now, and I say this repeatedly in many of my shows, is that um, people need to detoxify. And we've we've exceeded our burden as far as toxins go. I mean, we're slammed on a day-to-day basis by, you know, environmental toxins. We're slammed by... Um, you know, toxins within our food and our water and, uh, you know, the, again, the vaccines in, you know, every direction. So it's very important. And, and uh, also toxicity can greatly impact and affect absorption and uh, your nutrients and, and create nutrient de- deficiencies. So there is, you know, quite an equation to all of this. And again, pointing out the importance of working with a, um, you know, trained professional, uh, nutritionist, uh, health coach, etc., somebody who is well-trained and understands um, nutrition. So, very critical. Anyhow, the, I want to talk about the politics, because that's also very important. How were the politics a part of the creation of the first dietary guidelines? Well, very, very quickly, um, it's complicated, but the, uh, the bottom line is that this shift that we had towards a lower fat, lower cholesterol diet, which was promoted by the American Heart Association and Ansel Keys, um, also supported a number of ideological ideas, which is that we should be um, saving the grain for the hungry people in other parts of the world, animal welfare issues. There were also rising food prices that were a primary concern for consumers and for politicians. And then you had um, sort of in the background Earl Butts's agricultural policies that moved livestock off of pasture land so that they could be plowed and um, used to raise these monoculture crops, you know, uh, fence row to fence row. Thank you. Adele and Pam, I want to thank you both so much for being on the show today. Um, Our time is up, and uh, I would like both of you to encourage our listeners to visit your sites. Please go ahead and mention your site and how people can reach out and be more involved. Um, For a Healthy Nation org Healthy Nation Coalition. That's our group, and we would love for you to contact us and um, get involved. Pam? Yeah, we also have a Facebook page, Healthy Nation Coalition, where we regularly post some interesting um, research and 
um, news about the dietary guidelines, how they're affecting people, what the insights are from different different players in the field because we've got lots of different people saying different things. Great. And usually they have something to say that's truthful, but a lot of it can be very confusing. Um, and then myself personally, I am beginning a new practice in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's womenandfamilynutrition.com. Website's not up yet, but I just moved to Raleigh from um, New Jersey, and I'm excited to be focusing more on prenatal and ch- ch- child nutrition. Anyone wishing to reach out to me, it's whole, W-H-O-L-E, healthy, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y, living, L-I-V-I-N-G, the number for the letter U at gmail.com. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much for having us. It was our pleasure. Thank you for listening to Whole Healthy Living. Please join Sharon Brennan again next Friday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great weekend of clean, whole, healthy living. And we'll see you here next week.